Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everybody. It's Liam. Before we jump into this week's episode of Romerecast, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about a podcast I love called Back to One. Back to One is the no-nonsense, in-depth, actors-on-acting podcast from Filmmaker Magazine. Each week, host Peter Rinaldi sits down with one actor to talk about their unique approach to craft. No silly banter, no lengthy introduction, no gossip. Just actors like Juliette Binoche, love her, Ruth Nega, John Bernthal, Andrew Garfield, Gene Smart, and over 200 other working actors talking about shop. So my favorite episode of this show is one with Ethan Hawke. And I remember so clearly listening to it in a late fall, early winter, I think of 2019. I was walking around Brooklyn. I was walking home from work. And Ethan Hawke, as I recall, begins the conversation by talking about Robert Brisson, which, I mean, I host a French New Wave podcast with my buddy Sean Senevaratna. Ethan Hawke talking about Robert Brisson is mm, very much a happy place. And if, if you love cinema, if you love actors, if you love acting, if you love learning about craft, then Back to One is the show for you. To listen, search for Back to One on your favorite podcast app or find it at Filmmaker Magazine. Dot com. Enjoy. First, the skills that I will teach you at work and say, no. no, you will not control me. No, no. you will not take my soul. No. no, you will not win this game. Because yeah. it is a game, guys. You want to think it's not, huh? You want to think it's not, you go back to the schoolyard and you have that crush on big titted Mary Jane. <laughs> Respect the cock. Welcome to Romerecast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Liam Billingham. And I'm Sean Sonavaratna. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for season two. We're season on season two. Season two. This is the beginning of season two. The dose. Uh, dose. Uh, the first season was. Uh, Why did was... I do that in Spanish? <laughs> this is a French New Wave podcast. Dude. Embarrassing. Dude. Dude. Uh, 
Our first season, we just wrapped up. Um, that was a really awesome season that was focused on the Summer of Romare films that was at Metrograph. But through those films, and for season one, I think it was very fitting, we really kind of tackled the idea of what is Romarian? You know, we were trying to figure out um, there's kind of an idea of like what makes up a Romare film. And through those movies, we wanted to get into that a little bit deeper. So um, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, uh, go back go to back. season one. Go back. Season- what are you doing? It's a nice short season, three episodes that um, looks at some good starter films of Romare, really good entry points into his working methods, his films, um, his vibe. Um, I would start over there, and then this season is going to be have a little bit of a different focus. Correct. This season is much more specifically focusing on what we're going to call Romarian production methods and how he made his movies. Now, this does not mean we're not going to be responding to the movies, talking about what we liked about the movies, but the sort of angle of the movie is going to focus on the movies through the lens of the following categories. Sound, image, let me start over. Sound, image slash framing, edit, and directing. And then we're going to talk about what we thought of the movies. So it's going to be a a long payoff to when we say what we actually thought of the movies. Um, And we're going to talk about three films. Sean, do you want to tell us what three films we're going to talk about in this season? Yeah, this was just one little note. This was a lot of fun to kind of think about, you know, as we were getting into Romarian production methods, trying to decide what are the three movies that best sort of um, take us on a trajectory where we kind of understand how he began, how he evolved and things that sort of affected his production process. So we're going to be beginning with um, his second first feature, La Collectionus from 1967. Uh, Then we'll be transitioning to his historical drama, Percival. Also his longest movie. Also his longest movies, because most of his movies don't exceed about 90 minutes, 100 minutes. 80 to 100 minutes. And Percival's the longer one. Um, And that's from um, the mid-70s. I don't remember the exact year. Um, And then we're going to wrap with The Green Ray, which is his most um, pared-down improvisational shoot. And that's from uh, 1986, I believe. And kind of his vibiest. Like, that movie's kind of taken on this, like, maybe it's the Metrograph influence. Shout out to Metrograph. But that's sort of like, people think about that movie quite a lot in terms of its... um, in terms of being like a real Romare. It's like a rare movie yeah. to Romare movie to start with. Um, why did you say that La Connection La Collection News, the film that we're talking about today, is his second first feature? So it's the feature that came out um as part of his Moral Tales series. And those six Moral Tales is when he sort of burst onto the scene in the 1960s. Um, he had been making movies prior to that. However, these are the movies that were able to um, gain attention um, in the uh, in the media world, at Cannes, at film festivals. Um, and so he had made a movie prior to this, uh, prior to this called The Sign of Leo. Um, from 1962. However, that movie, which is a movie we'll have to talk about at another point and another season on the of the show, um, it didn't do for Eric Bromer what Breathless did for Jean-Luc Godard or what 400 Blows did for Francois Truffaut. Um, and so with La Collection News being his first feature after that, it's really the one that kind of um, was able to put him on the map a little bit more. You know, it's interesting that you bring up 400 Blows and Breathless because they're both made before this film. And um, though, and I, we've talked about this before, 
Romare is considered part of the French New Wave. He certainly stands in some ways in opposition to it. You know, this is an interesting moment maybe to jump into our segment Romare in the air, because my Romare in the air for the, and we haven't recorded in a few weeks, but my Romare in the air, this is that I've been really digging into the Romare biography that I've been reading, which is by uh, Noel Herpe and Antoine de Baquet. Um, like I've been reading and I'm in the section fittingly, both for what we're talking about here, but also for what's recently you know, unfortunately happened in the world, which is the passing of Jean-Luc Godard, because mm-hmm. I'm reading the section about Cahiers du Cinema and sort of the internal conflicts and the personalities that define that. And Jean-Luc Godard plays a role in The Sign of Leo. He's a small cameo in the film. Mm-hmm. And um, Romare was both older than those guys and had a very different attitude towards cinema. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, there's... The most obvious, simple corollary here, and we can get into this, is that Godard specifically viewed cinema as a way to manipulate reality. And that sort of Brechtian idea of, you know, art as a hammer with which to shape the world kind of mm-hmm. mentality. And I think Romare's and very simple ways of thinking about it is following in the tradition of what Cahier was before he took over as the editor, the Andre mm-hmm. Bazinier's, is that it was much more meant to reflect reality and to mm-hmm. and to portray what is beautiful in the world. And mm-hmm. I think we can mm-hmm. we can dig into that a little bit more. But I've yeah. been reading a lot. And I also purchased, I haven't received it yet, but I from Metrograph, I purchased the this is real really a Metrograph stand podcast at this point. <laughs> I purchased the new collection of Serge Denis, 1970 to 1990 collection that that's being published with an intro by friend of the podcast, A.S. Hamra, whose book, The Earth Dies Streaming, is one of my favorite collections of film criticism, maybe ever, to be honest. It's great. And it's so, what's so awesome about the book too, it's really accessible. Um, so it's fun for like, even if it doesn't matter whether you're familiar with the movies that are It being really discussed, doesn't matter. And that's yeah. the beauty of good film writing is it actually doesn't matter whether you know the movie. Um, the writing is its own work of art. Yeah, and he's a, he he brings a little narrative to his writing before usually mm-hmm. um, challenging your perception of what he's a real artist of a film critic. I think that, yeah. that he brings an artistry to film criticism that for sure there yeah. are a lot of great film writers, and I would say he's one of the best. And also, he writes for the Baffler, which is a great place to um, read his work as well. So, Sean, let's talk a few interesting facts about La Collection News. Unless you have wait, I didn't ask you. Do you have any Romeres in the airs? Romare's man it's been such a whirlwind so for folks on the podcast this has been a return you know season one was I was living my summer of Romare life on summer vacation um, as a teacher like cordials at one o'clock in the (laughs) afternoon like I I see no cocktail in your hand right now my friend no cocktail I'm just I'm getting back from work where I uh I'm a teacher and uh so like it's been like a real sort of like a readjustment but what's kind of cool about this season is kind of like gonna very much be fitting into that but uh no there's been no romare in the air for me there's been nothing in the air except just like readjusting um uh to uh back to life i uh this is a side note but being coming from a family entirely of teachers and as you know formally being a teacher Mm -hmm. 
but I never have never experienced the end of school year high and the subsequent end of summer low that that must happen. Not because you don't love teaching, but because yeah. it's exhausting. To, it's it's a change, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me throw one more Romare in the air thing at you, and then we yeah. can move on. Which is, I think I have a theme song for Romare in the air. Do you want to hear it? It's not Romare in the air. No, I think it's I can feel it. Romare in the air tonight. Hold on. Thoughts? Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That's, is that the one with the drum part? Do, 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 do. Yeah. All right, cool. So then, so that's what we'll do. You do that part, and I'll do the drum part. Okay, should we do it? Let's, yeah, let's we'll do, do it now. now. Take two. I can feel it. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can feel it. Romare in the air tonight. Hold on. Yes. Wow. Don't sue us, Phil Collins. So, La Collection News was released in 1967. It is, as Sean already pointed out, Eric Romare's second feature. It would have been his third feature had he not lost a feature that was made in the late 50s which we can talk about. This film put him on the map. It won the Silver Bear Extraordinary Jury Prize at the 17th Berlin International Film Festival. And according to Wikipedia, it is also considered one of his best films, which I think is an interesting thing to talk about because like so many yeah. great film artists, uh, often the first five movies are considered the best and everyone forgets about them after yeah. a certain point. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this film I, uh, was- That's interesting. Uh, I just uh, think, especially in, in the light of the recent, you know, depending on when you hear this, Jean-Luc Godard news, nobody's talking about the image book right, or right, goodbye, right, to, goodbye to language. Like goodbye to language, which you and I, which we, we saw, saw together. together. Yeah, and, I, and yeah. I, I had not seen a late period Jean-Luc Godard movie. And I was just like, what? Not in a bad way, yeah. but I was I was a little angry at the end of it. But that's a good thing. Like yeah, that was a yeah, natural yeah. response to non-narrative yeah. Uh, largely uh, hard to understand cinema. Yeah. It's hard to locate that stuff. But no well, one talks about those films as though they're some of his best. And in some ways, they're incredibly interesting movies. For sure. And it's actually interesting to hear that, you know, from the from the Wikipedia um, about Romare and this movie being considered a favorite. Uh, I actually, for me personally, I feel like it's not until the discovery of his later work in the 1980s where I was really able to kind of latch on Um and uh, yeah, the moral tales are not amongst my favorites of uh, of his films. Do you think they're probably so highly acknowledged because they're one of the ones where the box set is available? Has it been available the, for a long the time? The box set's available. It's uh, available on Criterion Channel. These are the ones that have been around for they're a long time. They're easy to time. get. They're easy to get. They're, they fit into a narrative, which is the French New Wave. So if you're thinking of cinema studies classes, these are the movies that make sense to show in that period, if you're covering that, they're in important your unit. context and they're, for what they're is important context. Yeah, arguably, you know, we could. This is debatable, but uh, seen by many to be the most important thing in film, modern film history. You know, sure, the, the French sure. New Wave is is crucial, um, yeah. and and in some it has its detractors in terms of like there's other things we could talk about mm -hmm. in terms of what you know, our new, what a new is, but it, it set off the Czech new wave, the Japanese mm -hmm. new wave. It mm -hmm. set off all the other new waves. Right, so right. that's Or like a lot of these new waves are kind of happening simultaneously. simultaneously it's just like too. the sort of energy that's in the air in the 60s and yeah. the late 50s. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and it's also a period where the films are, all, this is always true, but there's a real direct correlation between the politics and culture mm -hmm. of sure. the time and the films that are coming out of it. Yeah. Um, 
This film was made, it's actually technically the fourth moral moral tale, but made mm-hmm. before the third moral tale, which is My Night at Mods, which is uh, the film that really, you know, won an, was nominated for an Academy Award or won an Academy Award and um, really put him on the map. But this film was made because Jean-Louis Trigtignant was, was delayed and could not shoot My Night at Mods. So Romare decided to go off and make this film. Um, it was shot on 35 millimeter. And it's the first time he ever worked with Nestor Almendros. Now hold it, because I know you have a lot to say about Nestor Almendros. And there is a lot to say about um, Nestor Almendros. Let's very quickly talk about the people that worked on the movie. Do you want me to do this? Should I just power through this, or do you want to do it? Yeah, I'll go for it. So we we got, um, it's directed by Eric Romare. Um, It's written by Patrick Bashau, Heidi Politoff. Daniel Pomereau and Eric Romare. The first three names I mentioned are also the actors in the film. Um, and we're starting to now, if you've listened to season one, seeing a trend of like actors being close collaborators in the writing process. Uh, the film was produced by Georges de Beauregard, a producer that helped a lot of French new wave filmmakers make their um uh, make their first and second films, um, and alongside Barbette Schroeder, who would be a major collaborator for Romare for um, a major part of his career. Uh, the cinematography is by Nestor Almendros, um, and this is the first of their very long collaboration together. Uh, Nestor Almendros has also shot the likes of Days of Heaven and Kramer vs. Kramer. In pretty good, of, uh, pretty American good shooter. Films. Pretty good run. Uh, no. <laughs> worked a, well, it worked a lot with Truffaut as well. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Mm-hmm. The film is edited by uh, Jackie Reynal. Um, the music's by Giorgio Gomelski and the Blossom Toes. Uh, the production Oof. companies are Les Films du Losange, which is also the production company started by Barbet Schroeder and Eric Romare. Um, and the movie is from 1967, and it runs 83 minutes. I actually think it's a little longer than that, but that's okay. Is that um, like from the... Uh... That's from, that's from. I think it's from a French New Wave site, though I, I then compared it to, to um, <clears throat> the Wikipedia entry, and they're similar, so it's possible that that site pulled it from there, but... Word. <clears throat> I always I think check. It runs uh, a longer. Always check Letterboxd. Letterboxd is the place to look. That's a yeah. good idea. Then again, Letterboxd is also probably sourcing from IMDb. So I'm going to give a plot synopsis of this film very, very quickly. I think that 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 uh, mm-hmm. you, if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Uh, this film has large, really three characters in it. Right? It, there's a fourth character named Sam who shows up later in the film, but the film uh, stars, as Sean mentioned. Three actors. Uh, Patrick Bouchot plays Adrian. Heidi Politoff plays Heidi. And Daniel Pomerel plays Danielle. They play versions of themselves. Uh, Patrick and Danielle are friends. Danielle is an artist who makes these sort of strange pieces. Uh, the piece that we see in the film is like, looks a little bit like a drum and is covered with um, razor blades. He's yeah. showing it to an art, an art dealer at the beginning of the film. Um... Patrick uh, Adrian, played by Patrick Bouchot, is a is a is kind of a, a da- dandy and like a mm-hmm. layabout, but is trying to open an art gallery. No one seems to take his business interests very seriously, but he's a businessman of he's trying to be a businessman, but um, it's a little it's a little complicated and a little weird. Yeah. And, and not though- that we really see much into like the you know the trying to start up the gallery or anything like that. You know, that's just like background information about. 
what he's well, doing. Well, and he and the and the the movie is about collecting, or that's a thematic mm-hmm. idea in it. So the idea mm-hmm. of collecting art. I mean, it's again a Romarian thing that he's very interested in art mm-hmm. and the art world, and I think it's a milieu uh, of which he he enjoys being a part of. I guess I should say. Finally, uh, the the two gentlemen go on vacation together to a friend's villa. And staying there is a woman named Heidi, played by Heidi Poltoloff, who is sort of like, does not seem to have an occupation and is instead kind of hanging out um, at the house, uh, not really doing much except going out and having a good time and occasionally, and from from the men's point of view, too often bringing home a companion to to sleep with. And the film is sort of about the dynamics between the three characters and uh, their relationships and how they ebb and flow throughout the course of three weeks in the summer. And it is really specifically from Adrian's point of view. The film is, while in in many ways, and I think this can lead right into our conversation about the filmmaking, Mm -hmm. wall-to-wall narration. Danielle, uh, uh, excuse me, Adrian talking about everything that he's experienced. He's decided that this trip, he's going to refrain from his usual going out, staying up till dawn. He's going to get up in the morning at 7 a.m. and go swimming right. and try to live an aesthetic life. For ourselves. Yeah. An aesthetic On life vacations. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, he sort of to this, everything's going to change for me now. Um, and in a way, it doesn't. And in a way, maybe it does. But um, Daniel... Both Adrian and Daniel, I think all the characters, because it's a good drama, are are difficult people. Um, and uh, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting film. I think we'll talk first about the filmmaking and then mm-hmm. we'll jump into um, what, what we think of the film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very quickly, I just want to talk about something I, uh, that I think is valuable, which is uh, before Romare made this film, before he made Sign of... Leo, he he shot a film that has been lost. It was it concerned four girls on an estate. It was based on a book, and uh, you know he was a neophyte director. And according to the biography that I've been reading, he wrote. I love this, and I love I'd lo- I I totally understand this. He sort of wrote a little manifesto for how I, he was going to make the film. I, I want to share it. I love shit like this. I'm I'm very pro manifesto, and I know sometimes people think it's. Really precious. Well, it depends or it's on what the really manifesto is like, about, yeah, yeah. but sure. <laughs> but like pro, like our, you know, um, like I love the idea of like dogma, coming up with a set of rules yes. before you even create a thing. Um, I just believe there's something about it, uh, and even some. I, th- I think people can be anti-manifesto because it might not be practical, or it's it might feel like uh, too self-conscious or too intellectual uh, to like set these rules up for yourself. But I think what's really nice about it is it, it provides a philosophy in which you want to create the work you want to make. Um, and, uh, it's important by setting out a philosophy, then you kind of know what's important to you and whether you're straying from that or not. Yeah. And I think it's also very auteurist. And I mm-hmm. think we're at a we're, moments like these in, in film history are moments when, we are reevaluating, you know, it's interesting because so much of the Cairo du Cinema guys were, were sort of looking at the auteurism of mm-hmm. American cinema, John yeah, Ford, Samuel Howard Fuller. Hawks, Samuel Fuller. And they're saying like, these guys are authors. They're the authors of their work. And yet American cinema is so producerial driven, you know, mm-hmm. even at this period. So not to say that those films are not those things, right? But I, I think it's sort of interesting what has evolved out of this. And I think it's yeah. also just, it is the right moment in time 
for someone to be doing this kind of thing. And and yeah. we should say that what makes the artists of the French New Wave so important to the art form is not that they were just producers of the art form, but that they were critics of the art form. They had mm -hmm. a holistic relationship to cinema. And Romare in particular is among the most important thinkers about film uh, that has ever kind of existed because he not only wrote, but edited great writers on cinema, some of whom he mm -hmm. didn't necessarily agree with, but he gave yeah. Godard and Truffaut. And, I mean, Truffaut was already pretty established as a critic before, right. as was Rivette, but... Uh, you know, he he played a major role in, in the evolution of of the thinking that came out of the yeah. French New Wave. Yeah, I can't wait for the future season to really just look at the like Romare editor in chief years of of Cahier and like how does the paper evolve under his leadership. It's an interesting, um, yeah. it's an interesting subject. So tell me about the aesthetic oh, yeah, let me, principles. Yeah, look at it. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, so I want to hear this. I'll read. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read a little bit of it. <clears throat> okay. The making of this film must avoid the dangers of excessive expenditures a producerial thought, not a directorial thought. The conditions of its filming will not be very different from those of a fictionalized documentary. Scenes shot in a natural setting with a minimal of technical equipment, mainly non-professional actors. No general director or set, set designer since the owner of the chateau has kindly made what we need available to us. Only the costumes will be adapted or made from scratch, inspired by engravings in the Bibliothèque Rosé. That's largely the crew. That's, the contract yeah. with members of the crew even stipulates one of the infatigable rules of life on Romare's sets on site lodging and meals, the latter prepared by the mothers of the little actresses. And then that's that was for that particular movie, the one that was lost. Yes. But, and, and the uh, writers of this, just real quick, uh, Epe and Dubouquet say that this is a veritable discourse on the method of Romarian filmmaking. I mean, I, I, so much of just from that first lost feature is set in stone of what he was interested in, the way in which he was interested in making movies that he pretty much stuck to for the entirety of his career. The entirety and of then, his career, And then yes. we'd see in those moments where, uh, you know, once we get to our next episode on Percival, when there's like uh, a necessary need to stray from that, how that sort of affects him as a, as a director and how he responds to that afterwards. And um, really yeah. interesting. And it's fictionalized also documentary. It's like, like fictionalized documentary utilizing these locations. Difficult you know, we, to, yeah, term fictionalized yeah. documentary, but I understand it in yeah. this context. I previewed a few minutes of Percival um, today. I, I downloaded it. It's available on archive.org, which I, I tell people because it's a hard film to find. Yeah. It's not easy to, to access that film. So you, but you can find all, almost all of his features on archive.org. But I bring up Percival because in watching it, you can tell it's a low-budget production, even if mm -hmm. it's the largest production. I mean, it's really made in this theatrical yeah. uh, style, but we'll get there. We'll get there. This is the, We're not talking about that film yet. Um, yeah. All right, so I've broken down the categories that we're going to talk about these uh, the Romarian filmmaking, Romarian production methods in, in for this category, and they are sound, image-slash-frame, edit, cut, and directing. So I thought we would just launch right into these starting first of all with the sound now the sound in this movie is incredibly distinct and i wonder if it's less distinct if you haven't 
you've done a fair, a little bit of reading about this film and about production because he was even obsessed with the locations. They shot the film in the south of France that the birds that you heard tweeting around, and I'm thinking specifically, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Adrian leaves his British model, or his French model girlfriend mm-hmm. who's set to go to Britain for three weeks. Uh, he they sort of have a parting moment where she's yeah. like, "Come to come to the UK with me," and he's like, "What would I do there?" And he resolves to go up to southern southern France. And there's all these bird sounds. And as I understand it, Romare was obsessed with making sure the bird sounds that you heard in that background were the actual birds that would be in the area at the, at the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's like this uh, this idea of being completely authentic to the actual sound and the actual image of that moment to remove all kind of falsity to not uh, you know he's not working in a dubbed way he's not working with um, post dubbing so just to make some very context, rarely I think yeah yeah uh, just some context for um, uh, listeners out there um, so this film is filmed on location, um, filming on location. Um, a lot of filmmakers would do post dubbing where they just take care of the image and then record the sound after the fact. So breathless is a movie where it was completely post dubbed. You don't have that direct sound. I don't think I knew it was completely post dubbed. mm -hmm, Yeah. Interesting. So, um, you could actually hear a quality difference when you listen to post dubbed audio. And I actually think it's really interesting. It's its own unique aesthetic, but with the post dubbed audio, it's, you hear the dialogue very directly and you hear maybe like one sound effect or ambient sound or just the kind of like tape hiss um with the direct sound it's really having one microphone in that location that's picking up the dialogue picking up the sound that's around it there's not a lot of sound mixing that's happening there's not a lot of sound effects or anything else that's being added in after the fact so uh direct sound and then that's something godard was very interested in after breathless um a lot of his movies was all about the direct sound so what you're hearing in those scenes what you hear is what you get what you hear is what you get and so um you kind of have direct sound is like in direct aesthetic opposition to the post-dub method, both of which result in um, really interesting and unique approaches to sound. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's sort of a thesis to be drawn from this, which we'll get yeah. to later in, in the episode, um, and the, we'll, when we sum things up and talk a little bit about how we feel about the film. But I think there's something really interesting th- about it and, and how, I'm, and e- despite the fact that, you know, so much of our mentality around filmmaking is like, what's the best sound? What's going to heighten the moment the most? And, and that's, and you know, a modern example, there's two interesting modern examples of filmmakers who seem to be really interested in direct sounds. Now this is going to sound a little ridiculous when I say it, but, but it is true. Uh, Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker is very, very committed to doing as little ADR as humanly possible in his Mm, movies, which is wild if you think about it because his movies are massive in scope and size and and scale. And one of the most interesting things that I read about is when they were making Inception, uh, there's like 97% of that is on location recording. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I think like if you think about Nolan as a filmmaker and really starting as like a kind of indie low budget obsessive, you know, yeah, for a filmmaker. Um, I still feel like he makes his movies in kind of similar ways, you know, yeah. minus the sort of like large scope of things. Yeah, and like you know, there are scenes if you watch 
Inception, this is not a uh, Christopher Nolan podcast, but there's a lot of handheld sequence mo- scenes in that movie that are shot like very, very quickly because I think that he knew he had to kind of counteract the scope of it with like, let's let's make this thing happen quickly and shoot stuff really fast and just like make it feel as real as possible. Yeah, the I other- also think he has no real idea of where to put the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and so he he kind of does a little sort of like uh, spray and pray directing. I think that in uh, opposition to that idea, not that I entirely always disagree, I think, yes, I think uh, a lot of his movies, sometimes his movies feel like they're made in the edit. I think that is true. But I think there's times when he has very, very, very strong ideas about where to put yeah. the camera. And there are other times where it's 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 faster and a little more improvised. I would say that in some ways, I think sometimes there's an... It's not that he doesn't know where to put the camera. It's that he... Well, it's, it's, it's welcoming the accident. But I understand... I point taken in terms of what it could be. The other filmmaker not working currently that was entirely post-sound is Bellatar. Which makes sense if you consider the hypnotic long, long takes. I mean, and you can feel it in the movies. They the sound does not feel rooted to the image. It feels mm-hmm. recorded after the fact. Yeah, you know, which yeah. is really really fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about the image and the yeah. framing in this film. Um, you know, it's hard not to for me in this entire film think about. This film comes out in 1967. Breathless is out. Breathless, a movie that sort of introduced the idea of like manipulating yeah. movies and and the jump yeah. cut. It's largely and- credited with inventing, whether it did or not, inventing the jump cut and the manipulation of reality. Uh, and and it- what's at, at this point too, like Godard's done like a, you know, he's... La Contempt, Puro Le Fou, right, Band right. of Outsiders. He's, much, uh, he's made so many Pierre movies. Savi has already been, you know. Um, We're two years away from Weekend. Yeah. Which has yeah, one yeah. of the most astonishing, I rewatched it this week, has one of the most astonishing long takes in movie history. I mean, the yeah, the, uh, the traffic jam is unbelievable. I, my jaw dropped at the end of that shot. Anyways. Yeah. Weekend is what I wanted Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie to be. Um, that's a movie that... I love Discreet of, Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I, I that's, a, that's one of my least favorite um, art house movies. Oh, interesting. I really Conversation like it. for another time, but I think it's a, kind of an interesting thing. Like, what are the sort of golden gooses that, like, we are not drawn to? And uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie does not, uh, is not for me. And it's interesting. there's some Godards. But Weekend, like I feel, is like what I wanted, what I want Discreet. That's, Weekend is my Discreet Charm. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, Weekend is a yeah, hugely important movie. But the filmmaker I kept thinking about watching this film was Robert Bresson. Again yeah. and again and again. Um, There's act- a Bressonian quality to the, the way the voiceover to the voiceover. Yeah, we got to talk about this voiceover um, and the way he selects his um his images the way he uh, the places where he chooses to put his camera and i think there's there's something to the production methods that's tied to this aesthetic choice that feels very brissonian um i think a lot of that also has it comes from this practical place of they could only afford a certain amount of film you mentioned earlier that they're filming on 35 millimeter um to film on 35 millimeter costs more than 16 millimeter, but it was important for him to film on 35 because he wanted the movie to look professional. He didn't want it to look like an amateur film, and 16 millimeter was associated with um, being an amateur film. So funny, that's completely different now. And and then now, after, yeah. after this, he com- he commits to 16 millimeter again. Yeah. After yeah, this yeah, film yeah. comes out, like or very after, or post moral tales. Post moral tales, correct? But yeah, yeah like he does. He this is not a, an attitude he maintains forever. 
No, no. But, and I understand for, in that moment, you want the movie to look like a movie and uh, 35 millimeter was what looked like a movie and 16 millimeter looked like maybe uh, your student film, your short film. Um, so uh, they could only afford, and they wanted to shoot on color on Kodak, um, they could only afford to purchase a certain amount of film. So they needed to make a very, very, uh, they needed to have a very tight shooting ratio. This film had a shooting ratio of about two to one. And oftentimes it was one to one. What that means is for every one shot in the film that we see, there's two takes of it. So they uh, did it once and they did it again, Clint Eastwood style. Clint you don't Eastwood do it more style. than that, right? Yeah. You, you just kind of grip it and you grip yeah. it. The expression we love to use, which is grip it and rip it. They right. shoot it. Grip. Maybe they make adjustment. They do it again. Yeah. Um, but now going tying it back to Brisson, you know, Brisson is so intentional with the image. You know, the camera is placed in a specific place because that is the the place where uh, visually it is going to do something for us. And then the audio is going to do something else. And it's the audio that's working well with the visual. They combine together for us as the audience. And there's a lot of that that uh, Romare is doing in this film as well. Um, you know, you have to be really intentional when you have such a low shooting ratio. Um, when they're filming these scenes, and this is a pretty dialogue heavy movie, they're not filming what is called coverage. Um, for those of you listening that um, maybe don't know this filmmaking term, coverage is when you have a dialogue scene or you have a conversation and you film the entire scene from at least two angles, you know, one, Let's say multiple angles, right? Multiple angles. You know, at the bare minimum, you're filming it from two. You, know, right. you got you got it on the one character. So if this is a scene of Liam and I talking right now. We got one take that's entirely on Liam, one that's entirely on me. Perhaps you would have a wide shot that shows both of us. Then maybe you would have over-the-shoulder shots. That'd be a pretty wide shot because I'm in L.A. and you're in New York. <laughs> it would be the widest shot. It would be pretty wide. <laughs> um, you would it's have... just a Google Maps image. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. But no, of course, if we were in the room together, you'd want would be like a wide yeah. or a two, which yeah. means there are two people in the shot. Yeah. And so... Typically, you know, a lot of productions do this. Um, so you have room in the edit to decide what, uh, who's saying what when. Um, Romare didn't have that luxury. He had a really limited amount of film to be able to use. And so he had to be really intentional, even with the dialogue scenes, who the camera was going to be on and which, at, which dialogue he needed from that person. So you're not just filming like a full take with adrian's character and then a full take with hades character but all the parts in the film that you see of that dialogue are the portions of that film of that dialogue and there's not anything and, else. and another way to think about that and look all of these different terms and ideas um intermingle but that's called a, in the way this film is edited in camera meaning yeah. the editing decisions are made before to save money because you're using less film a quick note is that when this film was dropped off at the lab so to speak they thought it was a short there Just was because so there was little so material little film. Yeah. that they were like, oh, this must be a short. A yeah. um, lot, of, lot of really interesting things you've just said there. I think another, like, to jump into the theory of, of and sort of yeah. to go beyond just this film specifically is that I think coverage is often a term, whether this is true or not, is a term often associated with TV because it allows for a production method that goes, we have to shoot seven pages today. Mm -hmm. We need to know what we're going to shoot so we can make our day. 
that's true in movies too. But I would say that traditionally movie movies are are considered more of a visual medium even than television. Even though tele- television is a producer and a writer's medium, it's about it's not about directorial intent. It's actually the directors mm-hmm. in TV who can be amazing, and this has shifted a little yeah, bit because sure. TV TV is can be a tourist now, so to speak. But you know, most series are directed by multiple people, and so you're not putting as much of a directorial stamp on the product. And a directorial mm-hmm. stamp is the way the movie looks, the way that it's yeah. framed, the way that it's shot and that a lot of great filmmakers even in the hollywood the great golden age of hollywood period uh directors would only shoot they would shoot one-to-one they would only shoot what they wanted because they didn't want producers to muck it up after the fact because in that period a director would role would be to shoot a movie and then move on to another movie they were contracted at studios right and what's interesting how that relates to this is that Cahier du Cinema and and the French New Wave were kind of among the first people to be like, no, like movies are an expression of art, whereas, you know, an expression of opinion, auteurists, they're authors of their work. Whereas in Hollywood prior to this, filmmaking was often much more driven by a functional, a directing, I should say, it was much more functional yeah. and that your job was yeah. to shoot a Place movie. Place the camera, work with the actors, get the scene. And then the movie goes to the editor. And we should say that that resulted in a lot of masterpieces. For I would sure. say The Maltese Absolutely. Falcon totally. is one of my favorite movies of all time. But The Maltese Falcon is shot in a very golden age of Hollywood style, which is to yeah. say that it's almost like a play captured on film with appropriate wides, appropriate closes, appropriate yeah. mediums. Romero and these guys were kind of like, no, 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 cinema is its own art form. It's, it's, uh, and so therefore, there's no image. No image should really be like another. Or, yeah. or we're built. We're 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 building a, we're building a thing. We're but building now, an, a a product unto its own. And yes. What's interesting going off of that is, um, this movie, while having a very specific approach to the shooting, is not um, new wavy in the way that people might think of like new wavy this isn't like a rule breaky movie this isn't a movie that does like wild stuff with the camera you know so it's these intentional choices that he's making but it is um there's like a a classicism that's there you know uh romare is very influenced by silent film a lot of his filmmaking yeah uh, yeah is murnau and uh and griffith and looking at those filmmakers and the theories of bazan of like maintaining spatial unity um really informs um his directorial process so what we don't see in this movie um, is some of the flashiness. And, you know, sometimes I think like we associate the, look at me the flashiness, technique. the look at me technique or the flashiness, um, which we kind of associate with new waves. So I think actually a little bit incorrectly. I think the earlier new wave films like have a little bit of that. But like by most of these directors, second or third films, like they'd all kind of become like a much more subtle but what we don't have are like some of the like more stylistic use of handheld or the stylistic use of jump cut editing um that being said this isn't a traditional movie and the way he uses voiceover is really really unique and i think that feels so in line with the kind of almost like subjective quality that we find in um a lot of these earlier new wave films um, Liam, you want to talk a little bit about the voiceover and like, what do we hear in the voiceover of this movie? Well, well, that was a long, longer pause than I, I'm still here guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I think the voiceover, I was thinking about this this morning that, um, 
and th- this is going to get a little bit maybe into how I feel about this character, mm-hmm. but and the movie that by extension. But you're getting the interiority, the thoughts, the ideas, what the character thinks, um, his perception of the situation. This movie is very, very subjective. Um, we only really understand it through Adrian's lens. He's talking a little bit about his goals, his plans, what he wants to do, how he's trying to kind of manipulate the situations he's in, um, how he feels anguished, and how he has a complicated relationship to Heidi, the woman that that is staying in the home, where he's simultaneously repelled by her, but also um, very attracted to her. And he's mm-hmm. judgmental of her morals and her decision to be, like, from his point of view, kind of loose, as it were. Um, and it really brings us into his mentality. And, and I find that what the effect of, of a wall-to-wall voiceover does to me is it keeps me at a bit of a remove from the character. I don't, because maybe I'm not working to understand what he's thinking because I know what he's thinking or I'm not. <laughs> deeply like i'm not leaning forward into the film to understand what's happening even though i think there is a so i think i'm i'm sort of i'm a little bit detached as a viewer of the movie though i do think the tension in this movie for me and maybe this is looking at through a modern lens is the tension between what adrian is saying and what's happening on screen and i if there's critique in the film by mm -hmm. romare it's it's that it's you it creates this interesting dichotomy. And I think, you know, this is why he's a fucking master of like audience engagement for me, which is he's always finding ways or doing things that um make a, us a participant in the movie. And so we have a direct visual observation of reality, you know, the way things are actually playing out, coupled with the way he thinks about things and what he's thinking. And we can very clearly see the ways in which he deludes himself. He lies to himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. He bullshits. Uh, and we see the contrast between his thoughts and the things he tells himself uh, to be true versus what actually is true or what is observably true to us as an audience. Well, and I think that if there is something sort of in touch with the French new wave about this movie and the manipulation of reality, it's that Romare uses somewhat classical techniques of voiceover narration yeah. and sort of the unity of time, place and action mm-hmm. to create a cognitive dissonance, which yeah. implies the idea that like what we see and what we think as a result of cinema are two different yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. pretty masterful. And and it's it can be hard to feel that when you're watching the film and and uh because it's it's a bit of a strange movie to watch yeah. at times. It's very literary, it's very psychological, it's very mm-hmm. philosophical, but it is also a bit of a comedy because I think as you said, this guy um Adrian is deluded. Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, deludes so, himself. I don't know if you used this term earlier, but it really is. It's like two fuckboys at a summer getaway <laughs> in the house with like um, uh, a good looking woman that they want to sleep with, um, but has no interest in them. Uh, and then just the, and it's kind of just going along the for the ride and yeah. wants to have a good time, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're they're like they condemn her for like having a good time yeah. because they're yeah. puritanical the, idiots. Yeah, but then um, also, just, like, you know, open-minded about it. It's just like, oh, like, you could do whatever you want. You know, it's like they're they're okay with, uh, with it to a certain degree, but they also are judgmental of it because they are not a party to it, you right. know? So they, they are not 
uh, one of the collected. And therefore, there is a bitterness, there's a pettiness, there's a resentment that starts to build. Um, and one thing, you know, they're, to, threatened, to... they're threatened by her, her freedom. And what this actually comes back to is the way the film is edited. And, and I would say that the film cuts as little as possible, except in scenes of conflict. There's a significant amount more of cutting. There's a scene where they're all sitting together arguing, and, and it, it's a scene that has a lot more coverage and a lot more cuts than a lot of the other scenes in the film. It cuts, um, the characters are framed in opposition to one another, meaning that Adrian and Danielle are framed in a two, and Hyde is framed in a one, and it cuts some close-ups to her and close-ups to them. And you feel as though, again, you know, Romare philosopher, dialectician, if that's a word, uh, seems to understand that like using the basic grammar of cinema, meaning cutting and uh, wide, medium, close coverage to sort of get us involved in the feelings. It is in some ways the most conventionally cut scene in the film. There's also a scene a little bit later where Adrian is laying on the beach with Heidi and he mm -hmm. makes a pass at her. And there's this very Bressonian decision to watch Heidi reject him, but not by looking at her face so much as, or not even really her body, but more by what she does with her feet. She flips her, she flips over to run away from him. And we watch it. We watch that action play out from the way her feet move away from his foot, which has made contact to her. So the, the seduction and then the rejection are not framed in a wide, they're framed in close-ups of the bodies, right? Which yeah. implies this idea that Brasson introduced, which is the idea of the actor as model. And I think it's not necessarily about their psychology. It's about using action and their action, to yeah. imply these movies are action movies. All movies are action movies, and it's a very in addition to the voiceover narration. This is one of the strongest Brasonian moments in the film because he doesn't choose to highlight the emotion; he chooses to highlight the action and the behavior. And this yeah, scene also true. cuts quite a bit. Yeah, but like it is through behavior where we are. You know, it is the visual expression of what we are feeling, and so but we never know what it really means. So it is through our observation of this behavior that we as an audience and Adrian as a character needs to start to um, looking deeper into to start to break it down. Um, going off of what you said of like the behavior and the way he cuts, I think the opening scene in this movie, which is the introduction to Heidi, is really interesting because um, through a series of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine shots, through a series of nine shots, he breaks Heidi down and focuses on different things. We first see her in a wide, and then it we see in medium close-up, then we see her back, then we see the back of her knees. It's literally breaking her into all these different Compartmentalized parts. pieces. Compartmentalizing it, these pieces, we are not seeing the whole. The final image is her collarbone and neck. So like, it's really pretty sexy. This, it's a pretty yeah. sexy image. Oh, like absolutely. It, it, yeah, by the end of that sequence, you're like, woof. But it's, it's, it's a visual analysis of like, Heidi as a figure. And, and the way she's perceived by these two fuckboys. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Before we're, we're introduced it's to It's a very them. interesting and, and somewhat provocative choice. Yeah. And, and actually... And it would be the subject of many a think piece were it to we, come out today. Yeah, I think as an audience, way. yeah, for sure. And as an audience, we must perceive her first. We know nothing about her. That's our first thing that we see. And then we, it's like us, we're already making our opinions and trying to look into it. And so then what we feel brings us into that next scene where we're introduced to Daniel. Um, so now we're kind of like, you know, already have like 
something that we've responded to and now that's something that we take with us, which is what is our reaction to Haiti? It's a really good point. Um, I feel like the final category here is directing of the film, though I do feel as though we've all of this, all of what we've talked about explicitly so far that's is all, talking yeah. about directing. So is there any sort of like last yeah. last thoughts you want? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have some it. thoughts. Well, so um, I'm, I want to read this quote in full from the uh, Eric Wait, Romare hold that book. book up. Hold that book up. Nice. Great. Got it. Uh, I want to read I this. Have, uh, I have a book to hold up, too. Oh, yeah. Hold it up. Hold it up. No, you first. Wait, Wait you me. did it. Tell. Read the quote. <laughs> Oh no, I lost it. I lost the page. I took my All right, then I'll hold mine up. Yeah. I'm reading Eric Romare, Realist and Moralist right now. While wearing a Von Trier hat. What a combo. What a combo, Sean. That's uh we're gonna have to do a nice little book exchange. We will. That's a yeah. good idea. I'm never giving up my autobiography, my, my biography, but that's fine. Yeah, I'm gonna pick that up. Um so uh I think I thought so I read this book before we started this podcast. I read it in full and now I'm rereading it as we're approaching each movie. And this quote is one of the first quotes. Um, it's from the first interview in this book. And uh, it really, really, really stuck with me. Um, he talks a little bit about um, making the movie, um, the things that were important that they had to pay for. Um, you know, the actors and technicians agreed to work without salaries on a profit sharing basis. Um, I made it a rule that I'd only have one take for each shot used less than 17,000 feet of film. Oh my God. That kind of hard discipline has its advantages. Once the actors are used to it, they can actually be more relaxed and more consistent in their performances. And this is, this is the line for me. This is the line for me that really kind of just changed the way I had to, th I, I thought about directing. Um, it's much easier to achieve perfection in a single bound than step by step. It's like the high jump. There's no point in trying more than once. With some directors, actors must not be allowed any independence. And that kind of director has to do a number of takes to get the effect which corresponds to his own intentions. But if you think, as I do, that the actor's spontaneity should be expressed in each take, then it is in your best interest to shoot as little as possible. Um, I mean, that's like, if that's not like the strongest philosophical argument for like this kind of working method and, you know, equating it to a high jump and just being prepared and you're going to get it in one, but you have to be open to and wanting the spontaneity. You can't be a director that's after a certain effect or, you know, if it's like a Kubrick or Fincher-y thing, like exhausting the actor until to the point of like, um, okay, now they're just... Being, well, they stop acting. They just They exist. just stop acting and just exist. And his is like the kind of the opposite of that of like okay we do that one we're, we're pre prepared for it and we capture the spontaneity in the moment that feels true um but i love that this idea of the high jump and you achieve perfection in a single bound and not in an iterative way it's also a little bit of the, it's cheesy to say but that like romero practiced a lot he like almost like a ten thousand hours thing like he just practiced a lot and yeah. you know at the end of his and i but think I, the end of his film career, you see that he could achieve a lot with very, very little. There's two things I want to talk I about here. I respect that. I respect that so much. And I just, if we're talking production methods, we're talking this season's about how to make a movie like Romare. Um, it's an important lesson. It's an important lesson for filmmakers and artists over there, which is um, 
what can you do if you're prepared? What can you do if you really limit yourself? Um, and I think you'd be surprised at what's possible. And this is amazing that he'd philosophically come up with these ideas for how to make these movies and essentially stuck with it his entire career and ended up being the kind of like working method in which um, defines the Romarian film. There are two things I want to touch on quickly, and I don't think we have to go into a lot of detail about this. But one is that um, rather than writing a traditional screenplay, he recorded lots of conversations with the actors um, and turned that into the screenplay. So it was it was improvised in the sense that he 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 didn't like sit and go like this is what's going to happen next, but really recorded them and and used that to make a screenplay. The second thing is tons of rehearsal before shooting, rehearsal, 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 which makes sense when you have a low when you're not shooting a lot of film. But he did it in really really simple. Uh, he would just rehearse it to death. And you can feel that. Everything feels like it's really happening, but also you can also feel like everyone knows what they're doing, but not in a bad way per se, more in just like a... It, it feels, never feels... It doesn't feel over-prepared. Or no, anything. it doesn't feel yeah. over-prepared, but it feels as though... It feels guided. It feels yeah. like we know where, where things are going to go. Um, just to, to speak on that point, you know, as an, uh, as an educator, this is something that I... I uh, come across with my students uh oftentimes there's a everyone wants to skip the prep everybody wants to skip the rehearsal yeah we're just gonna shoot it grip, think, just we grip, just got yeah. it we'll figure it out we're gonna improvise it we're gonna like you know we're gonna do it and it's like yes um that rarely ever ends up in something but something better than if you had prepared yeah um you know the examples in which of like a freestyle you know going really well um is much rarer than uh something going well that's been sort of practiced and rehearsed and you know what you're doing. And then when you feel very comfortable, I mean, it's like a jazz musician, right? When you feel very comfortable with your instrument, you can do whatever you want and right. you can go in different places. There's going to be a level of spontaneity there, but you don't achieve something transcendent if you're just trying to stay above water. And I think that's what ends up happening when people try to just sort of like run into things. And I think a lot of filmmakers do this too. It's not just like, you know, like my young students, but it is this sort of philosophy of like, uh, we got to capture it like on camera for the first time. And yeah, it's just a different way of thinking about it. And then some of that is just the accumulated wisdom of filmmaking where stories mm -hmm. are told of how things happened. And, you know, it, it, you know, oftentimes it's like, oh, it just kind of happened. It was spontaneous. But any, any story where that happens is actually based upon the reality that people worked really hard to do yes what they yeah. happen to be doing um yeah what do you think of this movie so it's not my favorite romare films i i know uh, with season one each movie we watch i was like this is my new favorite romare film yeah this i felt that way too one. um this is my the first romare film i'd ever seen um many years ago maybe in like 2000 and uh 2010 2011 um i don't love this movie um, cause I'm not really like drawn into the story. I'm not drawn into the characters, but it's a movie that's endless. Uh, I'm endlessly curious about over the summer. I started breaking down every single shot of the movie and screenshotting everything that, um, every shot that he, he chose because, um, I, I'm, I want to understand how this movie works yeah. and I want to go deeper into understanding the directing of it. But, um, I think the movie's cool and I think it's really beautiful and I think what he does with it and like the performances are, are good, but, um, it's not, you know, I think this is his starting point and I think from here he just gets better and better. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that, like he really had a plan in place, but he, he may not have quite achieved the Romarian unities. 
to produce it at, yeah. at the level. Now, this no, I think a, he, I think he made the movie he wanted to make for sure. And like, no, it's, I agree. It's absolutely, what he wanted. One thing we didn't get super into is that this is one of the most astonishingly beautiful movies ever made. It's, uh, you know, it was shot with like four lights and a bunch of mirrors by Nestor Almendros, and and I think that it, if there's anything that's ravishing to look at, um, yeah. and there's yeah. no taking away from that. But I agree, it's a little strange. It's a little hard to watch, um, just because their movie has a certain critique of Danielle and Adrian as people that exists. Um, the completely subjective nature of the way the story is told does make it hard because I don't particularly like spending time with these guys. Sure. Like yeah. I think they're shitty and I, mm -hmm. I think they, um, and they're not shitty in like an interesting way. It's not no, like they're shitty when in a you boring watch like way. a Woody Allen movie or something like that. It's like, you could have a shitty character that could be like funny and interesting. Well, they're like humorless. They don't have a sense of humor. Yeah. They don't have fun, you know? Yeah. And, um, I, I find that hard because I think the sort of joie de vivre that characters have in his later movies is not particularly true for these guys. They're both just kind of like, crappy dandies i don't yeah. know how else to think about it um yeah. Yeah. there is one moment that's really interesting that i, I want to highlight uh, which comes later in the film where um adrian is with sam his um sort of i believe american uh the guy who's giving him money for his gallery who's mm -hmm. drunk and seems to be a little drunk and criticizing him and uh because he doesn't work hard he doesn't you know do all these things he's expected to do and Romare says, I'm sorry, not Romare. Adrian says, we're all somebody's slave. And I think that that's a really interesting line because this is a guy who's clearly a slave to his, his own thoughts, his own anguish, his own shame, his own kind of inability to just be present in a moment. And also his own like need to judge and like what I would say are somewhat hypocritical puritanical attitudes towards women and yeah. some of that might be a Romare issue you know you mentioned earlier Romare's kind of like idea that you know filmmaking is one that sort of uh, is can is is meant to capture reality as it is and this book that I'm reading um Eric Romare realist and moralist the opening chapters position him as somewhat reactionary to the movements happening in the French new wave. And that there's an argument that he captured the beauty of the world because he viewed the world as beautiful. Well, Gardard, Truffaut, all the filmmakers around him who were much more politically engaged and inclined. I mean, this movie comes out in 1967. Well, well, not so much Truffaut though. Truffaut, true. like, you know, Truffaut kind of had his own, his right. own track. Those, his yeah. own track. Sorry, I guess more specifically Godard, but I think yeah. of the politically, the politically engaged mm -hmm. uh, filmmakers, Romare's definitely at the bottom of that list. So there's an argument yeah. in this book made that like, his, his movies are very of, apolitical, you know, he does yeah. not engage with the, the politics of the time. And I think that's part of what also makes his movies feel very timeless. It's but, not rooted in any specific moment. What challenges that narrative that he's reactionary is the very Bressonian use of voiceover to challenge mm -hmm. the the cognitive dissonance between visual image and sound. And I think, similar to Bresson, he's just such a gifted... He's, he, he maximizes the use of everything on screen. He's like a ex master of economy and image. Mm -hmm. And it's... So it's like, while I, while I don't know that I enjoy this movie and I'm not going to rewatch it this week... Um, it's a, it's a, it is a, it is a astonishingly well-made yeah. movie um, that I think manages through really strong image, really strong image, image making and sound to like 
never feel entirely reactionary or entirely obnoxious. Yeah. And I never feel sympathetic to the dirtbags in the movie, which, you know, I could. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. But I think there's something very modern in his decision to um, make us feel like at a remove from these guys and their behavior. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I, yeah it's, I, I, you know. He doesn't let us, he doesn't pass, I think he passes judgment a little bit on, or I think he leaves us to pass judgment on his characters, and I think that's admirable, but I also feel as though, like, the way he makes the movie allows us to maybe guess at what he might think. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, ultimately, what what he might think is not totally important, but he allows us to have our thoughts and, you know, develop that throughout the movie. Good movie, yeah. worth watching. Um, interesting little anecdote to all this. Yesterday, I was at a wine bar uh, with my wife and oh uh, yeah, you're clearly so town. busy, Sean. <laughs> I have guests in town, and so you know one must entertain. I was sipping and, wine, um, but I, as I was sipping wine, and uh, you know, I'm a for those of you, you know, you know me, but uh, people listening to this podcast might not. I'm a fairly uh, friendly and social person, and uh, while we were talking, um. Christine, my wife, called me a friend collector. And then I was like, interesting that you use this word collector. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Exactly? La collectionist. Like, I'm, I'm the la collectionist of our relationship. But it's more just like, uh, you know, she said it in like a very friendly way. But like, you know, someone you that fucking like... fucking friend yeah. collector. You <laughs> because, fucking... because that could be like kind of insulting. It's like, oh, someone that just goes around. It's like, oh, you just want to collect as many friends as Oh, I know people who are like that like, that suck and you are not yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like I like forming like actually like relationships and friendships with people. And it's not just about this quantity. But I think there is like, a, you know, thinking in terms of like the collector and um, how uh, Haiti is portrayed and how she is perceived and like the version in which like, you know, like for Haiti, it might be it's like I'm just like having these different experiences that are that are meaningful to me and like you know I'm living my life and then um Daniel and Adrian look at it in that negative way of like oh you're a collector right and it's a, it's a different way people there's always like for those without it always you look at those with in a in some kind of suspect way and uh there's always going to be a little bit of like this uh almost like shade or animosity for sure. I was once told um, that I make friends at 150 miles per hour. So you and I have something in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I really got that way. Want to be friends? You want to be that, friends? That makes, that um, makes a lot of sense. My <laughs> wife also makes fun of me because I'll be like, Sean's one of my best friends. She's like, you're 40. You still call people your best Wait, friends? you know, I mean, this is actually, I mean, th let's thinking about friendships in these films like i feel like his films have a lot to do with friendships that's a really interesting point because i have best friends and i consider you yeah. a best friend and um but i do we were talking about this yesterday too and like people like everyone has different relationships with friends and everyone has different kinds of best friends and people they call best friends and there are a lot of folks that just have like close friends and maybe don't have friends that they like kind of share things with or where you know like what's going on in each other's life um i don't know there's a lot to be said about like friendships but yeah no i got best friends and i have like best friends in multiple categories like best friends comma film best friends friend, best, best friends, friends in every comma, area childhood for, yeah right, best friends yeah, yeah. comma childhood um but it is interesting i think in his movies sort of make us uh make us think about these things collecting friends relationships well it gives you love. this thing i've i've said to you before which it's hard to not have an art hangover the day after you watch yeah. an eric romier movie yeah speaking of next time on the show percival his medieval epic I've been putting um, this one off. 
So Me too. this is it's yeah. long, well, I, we need all you know a whole evening to it. That's the other nice thing: the shorter films you can get through. Um, yeah. Thank you but so I, much for. I, I have a hard time with um, kind of period pieces sometimes. So I got. I hear that. Got to psych myself up a little bit. Got to do some blow and watch it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> please follow me on Twitter at Liam G Billingham. Don't follow me on Instagram. Well, I guess you can try to follow me on Instagram, but you can follow Romerecast on Instagram, where I'm post trying to post more. Uh, so that's uh, Liam Billing Liam G Billingham on Twitter. Romericast on Instagram. Sean, where can we... And I'm on Letterboxd. Sorry. I am uh, the Brown Sean, S-H-A-U-N, on all social media platforms. Um, Instagram, Twitter, which I don't quite use as much. Uh, and but when you show up, you show up. I have to give you When credit. I show up, I... Well, I, I kind of do this thing where, like, I'll come and I'll just, like do like a fucking tweet dump of like 20 tweets and then I won't check it again for, for like, another, a like another month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're one yeah. of those. Um, <laughs> please uh, tell your friends about your new wave, your French new wave friends about, wow. Please that's tell your a, friends be a who crazy are interested sound to hear in back. the French new wave about this podcast. Uh, we were, we have to uh, shout out um, a, a thank you to uh, Peter Rinaldi for, uh, for uh, you, featuring us on an episode of Back to One. You'll hear an ad at the top of this show. Um, but to reiterate, Back to One is a great podcast. He has great conversations. Lashana Lynch was on this week, which I think is a really, really great conversation. And and the back catalog is incredible. Yeah. And Peter's a Peter's a friend, uh, both in life and a friend of the show. And um, um, yeah, just for those listen that haven't to listened Back to One. To, yeah, for those that haven't listened to Back to One, it's also just supremely educational. If this is something, if you are in the arts, if you are a filmmaker, these are interviews with actors. That's really about the craft of acting. Um, it's a really important show. Uh, definitely check it out. So much good stuff over there. Um, Thanks thank for you all listening. For listening uh, to rate, this review, episode. subscribe, do all the things. Get in touch. We want yep. to hear from you. Thanks for. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, wait, I stepped on your line. Take two, take two. And thanks for listening to this episode of Romerecast. See you all next week. Adieu. 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 À l'intérieur, dans un laps de temps de 24-48 heures, elle est même remarquablement fidèle. Elle faisait l'amour. Elle faisait l'amour, au sens physique du terme, avec un type sur un lit. Je repoussais la porte, je croyais que la pièce était vide.